truth is that my father is a malignant presence, a bully and a liar, and he was fully personally aware of these events for many years and made efforts to hide and cover up. This to me is one of the most dramatic betrayals in recent TV history, a son stabbing his father in the back at a press conference. So in the finale of the second season of Succession, a show on HBO, Kendall Roy, one of the main characters, gives that press conference. And he denounces his father, Logan Roy, the head of a massive right-wing media empire. And Kendall basically invites the Justice Department to look into the family business. These struggles might look familiar to a lot of viewers. A family headed by a right-wing billionaire who's been stoking culture wars and poisoning the political landscape for decades. In other words, the Roys look a little bit like the Murdochs, or even the Trumps, with a powerful, amoral father and his competing, sometimes pathetic children, waiting for him to go away so they can inherit the company. When the show first aired in 2018, one year into the Trump administration, you might think that a lot of audiences wouldn't have the stomach to follow the antics of this hyper-wealthy, ostentatiously callous family through several seasons of wrongdoing. But the funny thing is, the more closely succession resembles our terrible real world, the more people like us want to talk about it. It probably generates more online discussion than any TV show I've seen since maybe even Game of Thrones. And I think that might be because Succession is both a show about the people who wield political influence behind the scenes and a show about crime. Season three of Succession premieres on October 17th. Today we're talking about why people like us like to watch people like the Roys and what the show tells us about white collar crime. I'm Alex Perrine. And I'm Laura Marsh. This is The Politics of Everything. Our first guest is Daniel D'Addario, the chief television critic for Variety. Daniel, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. So I would imagine if you're listening to this, you probably already enjoy the show Succession. But for the sake of anyone who might just be curious, what is Succession? What is the show about? Succession is a drama with heavy comic elements about a family called the Roys. Their aging patriarch is the CEO of a media corporation that he's built. And his four adult children scrabble over who will be the favorite child to follow most closely in his footsteps and their fortunes rise and fall. Any similarities to various oligarchic industrial families, including most especially the Murdochs, have been picked apart since the first season. But the Roys definitely have elements all their own from the mind of the show's creator, Jesse Armstrong. Right, right. Because that was kind of a fun game early on with sort of spot the reference. But now you're saying these characters after three seasons, are they're more than just the sum of references. They actually are like compelling and interesting on their own. I would say so, yeah. I mean, certainly in this third season, without giving anything away, the ability to draw comparisons, especially in the realm of politics, has grown more robust. It's a lot easier to see certain things. However, if it were just this part is Sumner Redstone's daughter and this part is Don Jr., it wouldn't be the success that it is. Right. And I think what keeps us watching is that they are their own kind of monsters. 
It's funny because if you go back to the first episode where Logan has had his stroke and the family are all kind of like outside his hospital room deciding like what's their move going to be if he dies. The thing that most reminded me of was not a contemporary media family, but Armando Inucci's film, The Death of Stalin, where all the nomenclature are around Stalin being like, should we try and bring him back to life? And so it kind of has this like analysis of power on that level too. It's a fascinating portrait of what happens when a kind of dominating power recedes or is beginning to recede because these four adult children have spent their lives with the climate entirely defined by Logan, that's the father, Logan's moods. They've spent their entire life studying this man, and yet in his senescence, they're suddenly left without a clue because he's so capricious and also because it's a frightening situation to suddenly have one's lodestar removed, right? The comparison to Stalin-era functionaries in a comedy is really apt because he is such a looming figure that they like literally can't imagine the terrain without him, even though they need to figure out their post-Logan futures if they want to have one. That's one of the, I think, political parallels in the show that I want to draw here that I feel like is less touched upon than the more obvious ones. There's an aging person holding on to power. And I think a lot of us have seen a lot of that in our real lives and in American politics. And from a sort of meta-fictional sense, when you watch the first season, especially those first few episodes, do you think that this is a show about a Logan, about Brian Cox? Do you think this is a show about him maybe even dying, maybe leaving, and then the chaos that happens after his departure? But he just sticks around. Like, that's one of the, I find, really interesting things textually about the show, is that it's premised on this idea of him going away and he just won't do it. And everything's about him maintaining his hold on power. We all think, like, what if Rupert Murdoch... What's going to happen after him? He's not going anywhere either. He still is running Fox News and the New York Post. You know, Diane Feinstein won't retire. <laughs> like, it's, just, it's, like a, it's kind of a show about this age cohort of people that can't release their grip on power. Right, and it becomes impossible even to imagine generational change yeah. of the sort that throughout history has been pretty natural and unencumbered, right? Like, it is time for the Roy children to do whatever is next in their lives other than taking orders from their father. And yet, he seems to be kept alive by the idea of power. It's the thing that motivates him, and it has some sort of supernatural ability to keep him going. It sort of fascinates me about this show is the appetite that people have for this particular telling of a story about a very rich, powerful, power-hungry group of people. Because if you think over the last couple of years, there have been a lot of shows about very rich people, like something like White Lotus, and also about like nasty, high-powered corporate types, for instance, billions. And neither of those shows have generated like the kind of discourse that Succession does. It has like a whole gravitational pull around it where like people online can talk about this show for hours. Why do you think that it fascinates, I think journalists particularly, so much? As regards journalists, I think that Succession very successfully embeds within itself both jokes that anyone can get and jokes that it feels like are special little Easter eggs for <laughs> folks who are more familiar with the media apparatus, spent time working at media companies, 
It's a show about a media company, and they get the details right in a way that I think for the recapping class, for lack of a better phrase, is very gratifying. I also think compared to shows like Billions or The White Lotus, Succession very effectively kind of has it both ways. And I don't think that's a negative. What I mean by that is that it simultaneously takes a somewhat moralistic view of its characters. It depicts them behaving in bad ways that I think the story understands are not moral or good. However, it also shows the characters to be kind of compelling, fun, engaging, roguish creatures whom we sometimes find ourselves rooting for, even though we know their behavior is so horrible. They also, some of the characters are explicitly tragic and we feel for them in ways we don't feel for the characters on The White Lotus, for instance. I think that in being a show that is aware of these people's flaws, but also shows their lives to be kind of richly drawn beyond the drama of evildoing. It kind of allows us both escapist fun and the sense that we, the less wealthy people watching at home, have at least something that they can't, which is like our morality. (laughs) I mean, yeah, at one level, it it is totally the case that this show is popular with people like me because I worked for Valter. Right. Valter is the digital media company that they screw up. And I was in that room. I've been near Kendall Roy's. I have not been near to them socially, but I've been in physical proximity to them. And the show gets a lot of the details about how the little people interact with them, right? Even though those little people are always sort of sidelined to the main story. But I think, too, you mentioned the creator, Jesse Armstrong. He's an English writer. And I think that the the show has a sensibility about rich people and powerful people that is less impressed than a lot of shows created by Americans, sort of like less impressed by the trappings of wealth and more able to see how these wealthy characters, they can be flawed in these grand and operatic ways, but they can also just be like pieces of shit. (laughs) <laughs> yes, yes, absolutely. I was recently watching the episode where they visit the old money family. Yeah, You could say maybe this universe is fictional Salzburgers, right? And the matriarch of that family, played by Cherry Jones, waits for her servant to finish preparing a roast, picks it up herself and walks it out of the kitchen and her family applauds her. Yeah, This is a show that understands why that's absurd and has the imagination to imagine that kind of like almost ludicrous theft of someone's labor for attention for yourself. That's a funny episode, too, because, like you said, they're with the old money people. And then you're suddenly like, even if you know all the ways of Roy's are horrible the whole time, you're like, well, these rich people are even worse. Yeah, (laughs) absolutely. There's different ways to be an oligarchical monster within the succession universe. It seems that the show is kind of remarkable in that it doesn't give you just like one good character. Like, one person in this show that you can be like, well, you know, Cousin Greg is pretty good. Like, he's not. Cousin Greg is just bad at being bad. I think the British satirical sensibility there, it's like the question of how are we supposed to feel about these characters? Are we supposed to root for these characters? That's like sort of moot, right? Like, the characters just are. You can relate to them however you like. This is just how they are. I had a lot of trouble with the first season before I learned the show's rhythm. In the first episode, for instance, they play a kind of cruel trick on the child of one of their household laborers and promise him some great sum of money if he can, I think, hit a home run in their family baseball game, which 
they're all adults. He's a child. They've dangled the money in front of him and he's never going to win. And I watched it and was like, I understand that I'm not supposed to like these people, but like, wow, I really don't. (laughs) And why should I care about what they get up to? And it took some time to get attuned to the show's wavelength. That's one of the interesting things about the show is that it's about a bunch of people who don't really care about appearing sympathetic. And I think one of the most intriguingly drawn characters is Shaban or Shiv, played by Sarah Snook, because in her mind, she is the protagonist of a show about a heroic daughter. (laughs) Like she, (laughs) it stretches credibility a bit that in the early seasons, she works for the campaign of a Bernie Sanders style figure, very leftist US senator. Throughout the show, She's constantly trying to work the levers of power to pull the company at least towards the political center, if not the left. Yeah. And it's kind of a pathetic mission because it's one that we feel, based on everything we've seen, can never succeed. And it raises these questions of complicity. So she thinks she's sympathetic, but even she cannot escape who she is. Well, that storyline with her working for Evis, this Sanders kind of senator seem to be positioning the show in that Trump moment very, very squarely. Like, I think when the first two seasons of this show came out during the Trump administration, one of the reasons people liked the show so much is that it depicts this Trump-style family. It depicts this Fox News-style media empire with ATN that they're presiding over. And then it's giving you the left opposition to Trump with Evis. This third season is coming out in a new political climate with a new president, I kind of wonder whether you think it still speaks to people's anxieties in the same way. I think it does. And here's why. There was a lot of enthusiasm and excitement on the left after Trump's losing the election. We all remember celebrations in the streets on that Saturday when the election result was called. And yet the Biden era has not thus far solved all of our problems. And it feels more and more like there's a greater kind of unstoppable system of wealth in this country that overrides whomever is in office. Mm -hmm. And the Roys are part of this. Without getting into specifics, they are more engaged in electoral politics this season in a way that indicates that rightly or wrongly, they view their power as greater than that of the US president. And I don't think they're wrong to think that. So I think in a moment when we've gone from a newfound awareness of inequality to a kind of fearful sense that inequality is the unbreakable law of the land, no matter who's in office, I think succession feels pretty vital. Yeah, it's interesting without getting into spoilers, too, that I think season three is the first season where they're on the phone with the president frequently. And I almost feel like the showrunners were willing to go there because it's not implicitly Trump anymore. They call him the raisin and there's sort of like some ambiguity whether this is even maybe a Democrat. It's not actually clear that he's on the phone with a Republican president. It does feel as though their hands are no longer tied by Trump being the sitting US president, that they can now more broad rangingly and certainly more explicitly comment on politics because for four years, commenting on politics necessarily meant that first and most urgently you had to comment on Trump. Now a show that's all about the system can really show us that system. And we see more of ATN's impact on politics. We see the ways in which ATN's impact 
may be waning in the face of the nascent power of YouTubers and social media. So that's all stuff that I think would have been harder to explicitly depict when it felt as though the first thing the audience would expect would be capital C comment on Trump. So thank you to the American people for once again electing a (laughs) a fully generic president. For the sake of fiction, we once again have just a generic white male president and our satire can be good again. Yeah, it does feel like when they're on the phone with a generic unnamed president, you can kind of, you can imagine it's Biden, why not? Whereas (laughs) (laughs) Trump has that energy all his own that kind of inherently spoils comedy. Daniel, thank you again for spending the time to talk to us today. Thanks, guys. It was a pleasure. You can read Daniel's review of season three of Succession at Variety.com. After the break, we'll be back to talk some more about Succession. It's a satire, but is it also a crime show? At the beginning of the show, we heard a son denouncing his father. But what Kendall was also doing was calling for an investigation into the conduct of his family's business. The Roy family have already been called to testify before the U.S. Senate in the second season of the show. And season three is headed into an examination of all the ways that they've been carrying out their business. Or to put it more bluntly, all the forms of white-collar crime they've been taking part in. Succession is not just a show about rich people behaving badly morally or behaving badly interpersonally. It's also a show about whether the law even applies to them at all. We're joined now by Jennifer Taub, who is a lawyer and journalist who writes about financial crime. Hi, Jennifer. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me. You gave me an excuse to re-binge watch two seasons of Succession, so that's great homework. (laughs) (laughs) That was basically our thinking around doing this episode. Our idea for the episode was to give us a chance to watch TV for work. (laughs) (laughs) So we've been discussing the show as a satire and as a comedy. We don't often think of Succession as a show about crime. If you had to convince someone that this is a crime show, how would you go about doing that? What would you say is kind of like the first moment in watching Succession where you're like, that is a crime. This is a crime show. I think it's the moment when the, I don't know if he's delightful or like disgusting, Tom, the guy mirroring mm-hmm. into the family. Tom like, Wamsgans. Tom Wamsgans from the Midwest. And he's so excited to be elevated to run this cruises division. Mm-hmm. And the mm-hmm. outgoing guy says the words, I need to tell you, I can either tell you everything I know about something and then you will know it and then you will have to deal with it. Or I can not tell you some stuff I know, and it may blow up, but, you know, plausible deniability. And when he refers to this mystery as the death pit, at that point, and when you sort of see this, you don't really find out the details, but you see Tom sweating through, looking into the the paperwork and calling his personal lawyer. At that point, you realize there's some deep, dark secrets. It's probably criminal. And as we learn from, you know, sort of the Watergate adage, the cover-up is worse than the crime sometimes. So at that point, I'm like, okay, Are they hiding stuff that now is material information the shareholders should know? And if so, does this rise to the criminal level? So I want to get a sense of the types of different crimes that are being portrayed on the show, because there's these crimes on the cruise ship, which are kind of like street level crimes, really, in that they're assaults. I think there is even some passenger death or the death of a worker on the ship. But then there are these other crimes that there's someone like me would never even think about, like not 
disclosing something to the shareholder of a company. Like to me, that just seems like, oh, you know, that's an oversight. Like uh, that's, how is that a crime? (laughs) And so I'm trying to understand what is white collar crime and how do you recognize it on a TV show? I love how you said, well, you know, sort of leaving something out that you don't tell the shareholders. To you, that seems like an oversight or maybe even something like civil fraud where you would settle money. So some of this stuff is non-criminal, some is criminal. Let me tell you how, like, not disclosing something to the shareholders could end up being criminal. So I guess, okay, if you're a public company, you're required to put out financial statements every quarter, right, with the SEC. They're called 10Qs. And then you put out your annual report, which is called a 10K, which gets audited. And in there, you're trying to give them a fair and full statement of your financial condition of the company, meaning what are your assets and what are your liabilities? What's your income and what are your expenses? If you have a major liability that you're not disclosing, whether it be a loan that you've taken out, or if it's a major liability because you have potential multi-million dollar lawsuits that you haven't disclosed, you haven't put a number on a liability, which makes your company look like it's healthier than it is. Mm -hmm. So where this gets into securities fraud under Section 10B of the 1934 Act, for example, is if, let's say, Alex is a shareholder who's like, I really think I like the direction. You know, you, you read the financial report. If you decide to go on your Robinhood account and buy 100 shares. Right, because I read the report and I'm like, this fundamental seems solid, looks like. Right. right. So if you, you purchased a security and you relied on this information, then it comes out a month later, the truth comes out about the cruises division and now the stock drops by 80% and you've lost 80% of your value, that would be a situation where you might bring a case yourself civilly. You're actually required to disclose risk factors. That's one of the requirements in your quarterly statements. The failure to disclose this risk factor, for example, if they didn't, and if it was done knowingly and willfully, the SEC might refer it to the Department of Justice for criminal charges. The tricky thing is that it's always going to be the mental state. Because, you know, everyone, so this is exactly why hiding it um, and not knowing actually who knows. Hiding it proves that you knew it was bad. Whereas, well, shredding right. the document proves someone knew it was bad, but yeah. you can't show that. Oh, right. Yeah. You know, how high up the chain did this go? White collar crime is interesting because it does seem identity dependent, right? Like committing a crime while wearing a business suit. Not like if you put on a suit and murder someone, but committing a crime in the course of being a white collar person. Yes, I like where you're headed. The way Alex is talking about white collar crime is the way the guy, Edwin Sutherland, who defined the term, thought of it. He thought of it as status-based conduct as a supplement. So this sociologist in 1939 coined this term white collar criminal, 10 years later writes a book about it. The book he writes called White Collar Crime is only about corporate crime. And to be clear, corporate crime, what he meant and what most people mean when they talk about corporate crime is the corporation itself is the weapon, the CEO's targeting shareholders or consumers or employees. So Sutherland's definition of white-collar criminal was somebody of high social status and respectability in their community, in his community, who commits crime in the course of his occupation. Mm -hmm. Again, leading first with status, then going to conduct. Today, you know, lawyers like me, um, and a tendency generally, even at the FBI, is to think of it in terms of conduct, Right. right? So It's wire fraud, it's mail fraud, it's environmental crimes, it's securities fraud, it's money laundering, it's tax evasion, and so on. And in doing so, we've really lost the plot because, you know, Sutherland, because he was a sociologist and not a lawyer and wanted to study this phenomenon of white collar crime, he wanted to count and measure and study the people who got away with it. Mm -hmm. And he made this analogy. He said, you know, people who study gangsters and mobsters, 
You know, we watch The Sopranos and you, you call those folks mobsters, even if they don't go to jail. If I said to you, that's about a mobster, he's a criminal. No one would say to me, well, you can't say that. No one would dispute that, right? Right, you're going to be sued <laughs> for defamation and stuff. But if you ever say something like, if you called, I'm not even going to name the person's name, this person or that person, a white collar criminal. And they hadn't been convicted then. And they had not been convicted or even charged with anything. The lawyers would be breathing down your neck and everyone be like, you're not very smart because you're not very nuanced. So it's as if there's this class of people that you can almost never call criminal because they have a kind of protection that just comes from their identity as corporate actors. You talk about this a little bit in your book. You call it the implicit immunity of the upper class. I was watching one of the episodes in the show, you might remember, where Tom is really happy that Greg, he thinks Greg shredded all the documents. <laughs> you got to love Cousin Greg. What did um, Logan say? Everyone has their game. Everyone's protecting themselves. So Greg protects himself by keeping some of the documents. But anyway, mm. Tom takes Greg out to dinner. And it's disgusting, right? They're eating these songbirds. Uh, yeah. It's just revolting. At this point, you're like, I wouldn't want to have that much money. But Tom is still excited to be like this wealthy guy or marrying into wealth. And he says, This is the thing about being rich. It's fucking great. It's like being a superhero, only better. And this is the <laughs> line that blew me away. He said, you get to do what you want. The authorities can't touch you. And then he says, you get to wear a costume, but it's designed by Armani, <laughs> and it doesn't make you look like a prick. And I'm like, that, having worked in New York, been around a lot of wealthy people in my lifetime, that rang true, as honestly do all the characters. So how does that implicit immunity work? And do we see examples of that on the show, of them getting away with things because of these little privileges? I mean, like, I guess there's no such thing as a spoiler alert here. So this is a this is spoiler bonanza. <laughs> the scene when Kendall is in the accident and the guy he's with dies and he comes home and his father just takes care of everything for him. So this is the end of the first season. He's driving a car with a waiter. And they're both on drugs. They crash it into a river. The other guy dies. So there's a kind of, like, potentially manslaughter right. here. But... His father pays everyone off. And it's actually the point of that episode is that his father reasserts control over the son. Right. Not that there has been, you know, in any other show, this would be the focus, the dramatic focus of the whole show, a potential murder, like a hit and run, someone fleeing the scene of someone else dying. But in succession, this is like a very small plot point that it's actually leading us back into this bigger arc about who is going to be the CEO of Waystar Royco. And that's the mutually assured immunity. I mean, that's how power is negotiated among people. You never know when you're going to mess up and everyone has something on you. And the father knows how to play this game better than anyone else. So he got what he wanted by being there to rescue the son. No one's worried about going to jail. Everyone's worried about the optics. They're worried more about the reputational costs and about sort of how the shareholders respond more than morality, but also more than they are worried, at least until maybe this next upcoming season, more than they are worried about the state punishing them for anything that they're doing. Does that seem realistic to you in terms of the the behavior of the other real-life versions of people like this? Well, I mean, let's just put a few faces on this. I mean, look at the Trump family. Right. Or look at the Biden family. Both families have at least one son who has appeared at least to my eyes, to be impaired in some way. Maybe it's alcohol, maybe it's drugs. 
and, you know, let them get the help that they need. I think that's the answer. But you don't hear them getting arrested for drug use. You mentioned the Trump family and some of these figures are sort of recognizable. Maybe Kendall is sort of a Jared Kushner figure. But it seems like the show is drawing on so many famous, wealthy, powerful American families. What else? Can you just give us like a, a breakdown of the kinds of incidents that we might recognize that the show's given us from the pages of the FT or the Wall Street Journal? The whole family owning a trust which then asserts a block of control over a public company is very similar to the whole Viacom Sumner Redstone situation. Right. I think the media empire aspect of this is probably quite similar to Fox News. Actually, I find that the news corps are really, really interesting because I think Rupert Murdoch is clearly a major influence on this show. We think of white-collar crime. We might think of something like Bernie Madoff personally had a Ponzi scheme that ripped a lot of people off, and he committed massive financial fraud. But I do think that there is this sense that the show is interested in and that I'm interested in of the crime committed by the firm more broadly. And News Corp, that, you know, to use that example, I always think of the phone hacking they got in a lot of trouble for in the UK. Murdoch owned tabloids in England and Great Britain were, were routinely illegally accessing basically voicemails of the people they were writing about. And it led to parliamentary inquiry and it was a huge scandal. But it felt to me like that's an institutional crime committed by a company. Do you think that sort of thing is like less prosecuted than individual crimes in the U.S.? If we think about people at the highest levels of an institution, like a corporation, engaging in crime. And we have the problems both of prosecuting the entity in this country, as well as holding the senior most people who benefited the most accountable. And in terms of the institutions, we have this sort of too big to fail reluctance. This is the policy of think about the collateral consequences if you prosecute the entity. So there's two problems, basically. We're both bad at punishing the people involved in these companies, and we let the companies themselves off the hook because we're worried about the consequences if we actually held them responsible. There's a tendency for the Department of Justice when there was you know, credible evidence that an institution had criminal liability, that they would enter into what's called a deferred prosecution agreement or a non-prosecution agreement where they say, we'll put off prosecuting you and we'll put the statute of limitations on hold, or we just won't prosecute you, either one. And you know, here's what you have to do over this three to five year period. It basically involves like an outside compliance monitor and it involves paying a boatload of money. I mean, the rest of it is usually just like follow the law and you weren't doing that before. Right. And those kinds of things is what we've seen. You know, a corporation can't go to prison anyway. And so not having the felony maybe isn't a big deal, but- what about the individuals at the corporation who orchestrated this and benefited from this? And those individuals tend not to be prosecuted. It's just really infuriating because it means that if you are inside of an enterprise, you can shield yourself. If you were part of a mob organization, you wouldn't be able to, but you're part mm -hmm. of a corporation just because it happens to have a legitimate business. If it's engaged in illegitimate criminal activities, you're kind of covered. That's really important, yeah. And because I actually think that explains a really important sort of plot point in the show, which is they're looking for a scapegoat for the cruises thing, right? They're looking for a scapegoat. Yes. They're looking for someone to to assign blame to. The fall guy. The fall guy. I've written a little bit about this myself, too, but the Arthur Anderson story an entire firm got the death penalty, basically. Arthur Anderson was a major accounting firm that was investigated after the Enron scandal and was 
convicted of accounting fraud, massive, massive accounting fraud. The government didn't shut the company down, but basically it couldn't function anymore because the SEC won't accept audits from companies that have been convicted of felonies. So so Anderson basically had to shut down. And this has been treated as a cautionary tale of overzealous prosecution, like something that should be avoided in the future by prosecutors, by the Department of Justice, right? Like, oh, we went too far. But from my perspective, like, an accounting firm that was engaged in massive fraud had to go out of business <laughs> does not seem like a terrible scenario to be avoided in the future. But now, because that's just not the kind of thing we do to companies that commit crimes anymore, the show is saying, like, Royco is not in danger as a company. So they're looking for the person who will be blamed for it. So true. And even that isn't always necessary. You, you look at Purdue Pharma, which is only a family you know, business, or was only a family business, maybe still is. And you look at the Sackler family, and what people don't realize is this is a repeat offender. Purdue, the company, and three of its executives, non-Sackler members, back in, I think it was 2007, pleaded guilty to mislabeling. And that was the crime that they got them with because it related to treating these highly addictive opioids is not as addictive. When they entered into that settlement agreement, and it was a guilty plea in that case, it wasn't even a deferred prosecution agreement. If you look at the recent criminal settlement, the criminal activity covered in the recent one from like 2020 dates back to like that same month they entered into Mm -hmm. that -hmm. guilty plea. So it's amazing. This company can like plead guilty several times over the course of its existence, and there are no humans Mm -hmm. responsible. Mm -hmm. And yet those humans who aren't responsible can make billions of dollars and keep them even after the firm goes into bankruptcy. I study incentives a lot. And, uh, you know, and you say harm to reputation. They're standing tall. After the company's first plea, you still had some family members posing in fancy magazines about their homes in the Hamptons. So a character in the show who seems to be one of the most competent characters and someone who is carrying a lot of secrets and maybe guilt is Jerry, who's the general counsel. Why would someone like her stay? If you see this mess, it stinks, right? Surely she's employable somewhere else. Why would someone like that stay and get deeper and deeper into this scandal? Well, I, as a former corporate lawyer, admire Jerry and really think that J. Smith Cameron does an incredible job. You say, why would she stay? I guess the question is, what's the alternative? Working in a corporate law firm is a grind. It's exceedingly stressful. You have to bill every like six minutes of your time to a client. You always feel like you're on the clock. And the thing about being an in-house lawyer, which is attractive, is you're with the business people. It's much more interesting. It's much more fun. And you know, here she is seeing these corrupt people, but I'm sure, her, what do they pay her? Half a million dollars a year, a million dollars a year? Maybe she thinks all the other businesses operate the same way. There used to be this expression that they told us in law school that, remember, it's the client who goes to jail. <laughs> you laugh, but recently that hasn't been the case. Oh. But you know, the question is how much does Jerry know? Does she have plausible deniability or not? I think she's ultimately a survivor and doesn't seem personally ambitious. She didn't want to be head of the company. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think she does her job and just wants to get by. I wouldn't stay there myself, but you know, it pays the bills. Jennifer Taub is the author of Big Dirty Money The Shocking Injustice and Unseen Cost of White Collar Crime, which just came out in paperback. The Politics of Everything is co-produced by TalkHouse. Emily Cook is our executive producer. Melissa Kaplan is our audio editor. If you enjoy The Politics of Everything and want to help support the show, please go to wherever you get your podcasts and rate or review us. Every review helps. As always, thanks for listening. <laughs>